0: You know, if my parents had genomic predictions test for type 1 diabetes and they had tested me as an embryo, they, they would have selected a different embryo. But if they had the ability to edit my genome, then I would be here without type 1 diabetes.
1: Welcome to the Illumina Genomics Podcast, where leading scientists discuss their genomics research and how genomics is shaping their understanding of science and nature. Here's your host, Paul Broman. Hi, and thanks for joining me for episode 26 in our series. If this is your first time joining, welcome to the show. You might be surprised to know that one in six couples is affected by infertility. In fact, according to the U.S. Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, almost 7% of married women between the ages of 15 and 44 are unable to get pregnant even after one year of trying. There are several potential causes for infertility, but one common one that we're going to talk about in today's show is having the wrong number of chromosomes in the oocyte, or egg. This is referred to as aneuploidy, and it arises during cell division, or meiosis, when chromosomes can sometimes fail to properly segregate. Today's show explores the technology behind pre-implantation genetic screening, or PGS. What is PGS? Well, it's a genetic test that can be performed on embryos that are produced through in vitro fertilization, or IVF. People undergoing IVF can use PGS to detect aneuploidy and to help improve the chances of achieving a successful pregnancy by selecting the best embryo for transfer. Today I'm joined by Dr. Nathan Treff, Chief Science Officer of Genomic Prediction and Associate Professor at Rutgers University School of Medicine in New Jersey. Nathan's research aims to better understand the molecular genetics of human embryonic development and reproductive potential. He's also an expert in reproductive genetic testing, as he served as Director of Molecular Biology at Reproductive Medicine Associates of New Jersey for 11 years. Nathan started our interview by discussing his scientific background and his path into PGS research.
0: So... I obtained my Ph.D. in biochemistry from Washington State University, and I got interested in actually the molecular genetics of cancer and using technology like high-density microarrays and quantitative real-time PCR. Now, I had this sort of transition where I got interested in diabetes. I I was diagnosed with type 1 diabetes as a Ph.D. student, so I went on to do a postdoc at the University of Wisconsin-Madison in embryonic stem cells. When my wife and I had our, our first child, I was interested in actually earning a little more money, so <laughs> okay. I had a connection with a biotech company called Serona, which manufactures hormones for people with infertility to stimulate their eggs, and had an opportunity to do a second postdoc there, and so that's how I got into reproductive genetics, and I was able to apply some of the same methodologies, microarray, qPCR, to uh, look at the genetics of the human embryo.
1: When is it that PGS is done in the whole in vitro fertilization process in that entire pipeline, and why is it done? Which people select that? In terms of the technology, just briefly describe how is the technology used in PGS?
0: Yeah, so to start, uh, I think it's important just to mention it. It's one of those things that people don't realize that infertility affects about one in six couples. So the biggest reason for infertility actually is the wrong number of chromosomes in the oocyte, the egg. And it is caused by errors during chromosome segregation, during meiosis. And so you can have extra or missing chromosomes in the resulting embryo. And this is actually the leading cause of miscarriage as well. 70% of miscarriage is caused by aneuploidy. So the idea was we could test the embryo after in vitro fertilization and then select the embryos that are chromosomally normal so you could reduce miscarriage rates but also it turns out it's also helpful to improve success rates so you can transfer fewer embryos the biggest complication from in vitro fertilization is multiples twins triplets Um, so there's some significant negative clinical outcomes associated with multiples we'd like to avoid it and one way is just to transfer one embryo at a time but then your success rates are lower And so what you'd like to do is have the best chance of success on the first try, and testing for chromosomes actually helps you to accomplish that. Um, And when you think about genetic abnormality in humans and the frequency that it occurs in the human embryo, it it actually makes antiploidy the most common genetic abnormality in humans. I don't think people recognize that either. It can be anywhere from 20 to 80% antiploidy rate in, in embryos produced through IVF
1: I'm not sure if it's known, if there's a way to test this, but is this level of aneuploidy something that's a result of the IVF process, or is this sort of a natural thing that would happen even in natural childbirth?
0: Yeah, there's a lot of debate about why this aneuploidy exists. Uh, In natural pregnancies, which also result in miscarriage, you see a similar pattern of chromosomal abnormalities. So it's really not the IVF that induces these changes. It's a natural phenomenon. And it's relatively unique to humans. Uh, Other species don't have a significant amount of aneuploidy. And it's something we really don't understand yet, what the actual cause is. All we know is that it's correlated with maternal age. So the increase in aneuploidy is associated with increase in maternal age. So after the age of 35, you see a really significant increase in the prevalence of aneuploidy. At 35, it's about half the oocytes or eggs. Uh, And then when you get into 40s, it can be somewhere around 90 to 100 percent, so it becomes even more and more difficult to produce a chromosomally normal embryo as the maternal age
1: increases. In PGS, some of the cells of the embryo need to be isolated, or biopsied, for downstream genetic testing. Nathan explained that trophectoderm biopsy is the most common method for PGS today. In this process, several trophectoderm cells are isolated from a five-day blastocyst. Trophectoderm cells are extra-embryonic, which means that these cells don't become part of the fetus. Instead, they become part of supporting structures like the placenta. And we discussed the different types of genetic abnormalities that can be detected with PGS.
0: What's more commonly used now is a trophectoderm biopsy, which you can do on day five or day six following fertilization and this has been shown to be the most effective and the safest way to test the embryo. It has a really unmeasurable impact on reproductive potential, so it's a safer approach because this trifectoderm layer actually becomes the placenta, so it's not part of the embryo itself. You also get more
1: cells to test, so the testing can be more accurate. So in doing the background research for this podcast, I came across a term called pre-implantation genetic diagnosis. Or PGD, is that the same thing as PGS or is that slightly different?
0: So, with respect to the difference between PGS and PGD, for example, the nomenclature changes I think illustrate some of the confusion around this area. So now instead of PGS, it's called PGTA for pre implantation genetic testing aneuploidy. And then from single gene disorders, which used to be pre-implantation genetic diagnosis, it's now PGT-M for pre-implantation
1: genetic testing, monogenic disease. PGS and PGD are a little bit different flavors of the same concept. And in terms of the people who are getting tested, What kinds of embryos are tested for aneuploidy, and what kinds of embryos would be tested for monogenic diseases?
0: Yeah, it's actually one of the big differences in the two populations of patients. Aneuploidy screening is done as a way to improve success rates for people with infertility, Uh, whereas single gene disorders, those individuals don't typically have infertility. They're there specifically to avoid a, a known risk for a disease. Whereas, again, aneuploidy is something that really everyone eventually will have as maternal age increases, the risk increases. And so it's something done for the general infertility population, whereas single gene disorders are done for families that have a risk of passing on a, a known mutation.
1: With the technology, could you kind of describe some of the different platforms that are used for PGS currently? Some of them have been around for quite a long time. Are there specific genetic abnormalities that are most appropriate to be looked at from specific technology?
0: Yeah, there's actually sort of a controversial history around technology for aneuploidy screening. The first methodology was fluorescence in situ hybridization, or FISH, mm-hmm. and one of the limitations was that you could only look at a few of the twenty-four chromosomes in the genome, and so they typically focused on chromosomes that when they are abnormal can lead to a miscarriage and therefore they don't necessarily test for chromosomes that when they're abnormal we know they don't implant. So you didn't necessarily see the increase in success rate because you're not looking at all the chromosomes and many of them just lead to a failure to achieve a pregnancy. They were mainly again designed to avoid those chromosomes that can cause a miscarriage uh, when they're abnormal. But it also turns out that the technique itself was extremely inaccurate. Uh, Really? There were a lot of subjective methodologies in interpreting these fluorescent signals, how far apart they are. If they overlap, is it one or two signals? The humidity in the room would actually impact the accuracy, so there weren't standardized methods for this. Several randomized controlled trials showed that it didn't work as expected, and one relatively famous study in the New England Journal of Medicine showed that it actually harmed patients. The new genomic technologies like SNP microarrays, quantitative real-time PCR, and next-generation sequencing, and, and also RACE-CGH, or Array Comparative Genomic Hybridization, all these methods had the advantage of being able to look at all 24 chromosomes in parallel. Everyone was pretty confident that would have a big impact on showing the expected improvement. Instead of just selecting against chromosomes that have a clinical impact, you're actually selecting against everything to improve the chance of implantation and success. So that leap from a method that wasn't comprehensive to what we sometimes refer to as comprehensive chromosome screening, where you can look at all 24, that was important. As we went from SNPRAID, a to qPCR, to now NextGen, which is one of the more popular methods, One of the advantages we saw was a decrease in cost, which has a big impact in the field as well. Most of these services are out of pocket, and so what we're trying to do is make them more cost effective so more people can afford to do it as part of their IVF treatment for infertility.
1: Aneuploidy, as you mentioned, is an abnormal number of chromosomes, and it's one of the genetic abnormalities that you study in PGS and you can test for Could you talk about some of the other types of genetic abnormalities that you can also look at in PGS and discuss how some of these may or may not be useful in the context of IVF? The idea of looking at
0: subchromosomal abnormalities, it's still a controversial area whether some of these errors are real or false positives due to the amplification methodologies. There are things like S-phase artifacts, so as the cells are dividing, they might look like there's extra pieces of DNA because it's going through synthesis, and we don't know how to distinguish that from a true imbalance. As I mentioned, the mosaicism.
1: What is mosaicism?
0: Well, it's like, you know, you have a mosaic piece of art, right? It's a Mm -hmm. mixture of multiple things. And so when you think about an embryo, if, for example, there was a chromosome segregation error that occurred during mitosis, you would have a resulting embryo with a mixture of normal and abnormal cells. You'd have some normal cells dividing normally and you would have some other cells that might have gone through an error and then produced for example a trisomy in one lineage and a monosomy in another lineage so now you have this embryo with both normal cells and trisomy cells and then monosomy cells and so when you remove a a biopsy from that embryo it's possible you might get a mixture of normal and abnormal cells, and so instead of seeing a full three copies when you're counting uh, the chromosomes, you might see something like 2.5 copies, and that's being used as an indicator that
1: that embryo is mosaic. In PGS, you can do screening for monogenic diseases. You've discussed that, and these are diseases where there's a mutation in one gene that, that you inherit from your mom or dad. I just did a podcast with Dr. Guy Paré at McMaster University in Toronto, Canada, and he was talking about developing a polygenic risk score for cardiovascular disease, which was really interesting. Thinking about that in terms of PGS, I know that there are these monogenic risk that you can inherit from your parents. What about polygenic risk and its involvement, and has PGS been applied in screening for looking at polygenic risk for developing disease?
0: Right, so this is actually... One of the big reasons why I decided to start this company together with my partners to get into polygenic testing, type 1 diabetes is an example of a polygenic disorder. And what we've been doing now, primarily with monogenic disease, is really just the tip of the iceberg when you consider all hereditary disease. Polygenic disorders. It's estimated by the World Health Organization that 10 to 25% of the population will die prematurely from a non-communicable disease, which is primarily polygenic in nature and includes cardiovascular disease. You can even think of cancer actually as a polygenic disorder because genetic background has a a certain risk for or susceptibility to developing cancer. Even though we think about cancer as a somatic mutation event where you acquire these mutations, there's actually a background that might be more susceptible to those. And so you can start thinking about cancer risk, heart disease, diabetes, many other polygenic disorders, and then really obtaining these polygenic risk scores for embryos. So Now you have another way of selecting which embryo to transfer to potentially reduce risks for a lot of these diseases that are much more common than than monogenic disease.
1: I've I've heard a couple challenges uh, already, and one of them is the ultra-low quantity of DNA that you're starting with when you do these assays, and then the other is the training sets. So for you, you know, on a day-to-day basis in doing this work, what's the biggest challenge for you? What's the biggest bottleneck that really, you know, impedes your progress? And And how do you, how do you go about addressing that challenge? How do you overcome that? The biggest challenge we have in terms of being able to apply polygenic risk scores
0: to embryos is really just the training set data. So having a very large sample set to develop the algorithms. For example, the UK Biobank, you right. have 500,000 genomes there to, to work with. And so some of the more common phenotypes can can be used to model and develop polygenic risk scores that are relatively effective. You can get into about 60 to 70% predictive value. It's not the same as Mendelian risk, right? right. but it, it does give you a certain power to select or at least rank embryos according to their risk effectively. And so the challenge is getting these data sets to develop training data algorithms to make predictions. I think we're going to see growth in the development of these biorepositories and genotyping to really support development of polygenic risk scores. And, and I do think that testing embryos will allow us to reduce the overall prevalence of of these genetic diseases in in the human population.
1: When I was just here not too long ago in Philadelphia, I was interviewing Stern Grant at CHOP, and they're very much interested in finding some common and and even rare variants that are associated with human disease and, and human traits. And then that sort of begs the question that if you can identify these traits, could you then functionally change some of these to alleviate some of the disease risk or even treat and cure disease. Where do you see that fitting into this overall process of in vitro fertilization and PGS? Do you think that functional genomics is going to play some role in the future?
0: Yeah. And for me, this is probably the most exciting part of our industry is that it could actually end up changing human evolution, IVF being a part of a a methodology to actually cure disease. For example, you know, if my parents had genomic predictions test for type 1 diabetes and they had tested me as an embryo, they, they would have selected a different embryo. But if they had the ability to edit my genome, then I would be here without type 1 diabetes. To me, that's one of the more exciting aspects of what we're doing. And it's a combination of IVF and genetic testing and genome editing to potentially cure a lot of disease. And so I think there's going to be a lot of research in the area. There's already a lot of publications R&D on looking at off-target effects and mosaicism for editing things like single gene disorders, for example. That seems like it's going to be the, the first target because it might be simpler. But also there are studies where they've edited an entire chromosome, so you might actually think about curing, for example, Down syndrome at the pre-implantation stage.
1: Wow, that's exciting.
0: Definitely a lot of R&D left to do, but I think it's something we should invest more in to really understand what the benefits might be.
1: So what's your biggest motivation for doing this work? I know you mentioned that you have type 1 diabetes, and I'm sure that you can relate to parents out there who are, who are wondering, what is the risk for my child? So what is your biggest motivation for, for doing this kind of research?
0: When I first got interested in research in general, I thought that I, you know, I wanted to get into areas that would prevent people from dying, like cancer research, when I first was exposed to infertility research, I was, uh, oh, you know, nobody's going to die if they can't have a, a kid. But, you know, I have my own children, and it's it's kind of the other end of the spectrum. Helping people create life, it, it's a big part of my life, and I, I think everybody should have that ability. And and it's one of the most rewarding things, actually, to help a family have a child, and, and they give you this feedback. And it's just it's an amazing feeling to be involved in that. And it's also pretty rare for molecular biologists to be involved in something like that. So to continue, I think helping people with infertility is important. but I, again, I'm very excited about the opportunity to see if this can fit into a way to reduce the prevalence of
1: disease in the human population, but also potentially cure a lot of genetic disorders. Over the next five or ten years, is there something that you know you think is particularly interesting? Uh, in terms of technology development, in terms of research, you know, where do you see all of this going? Where do you see the genomics and genomics analysis, where do you see that fitting into PGS and in vitro fertilization over the next five or 10 years? What are we going to see?
0: Well, I think we've all seen the, you know, Moore's law being surpassed by genetics and the amount of sequence we can produce. And so eventually we're going to be able to do whole genome sequencing on embryos. And one application might be towards this editing where we need to actually know what's present in the entire genome. Right now, we're doing things like counting chromosomes or looking at specific places where we don't need all that information. So as the cost comes down and the necessity for that increases, we'll see a lot more whole genome sequencing at the pre-implantation stage.
1: Well, Nathan, it was a great pleasure talking to you. I'm really fascinated by the work you're doing. And thanks for joining us on the Illumina Genomics Podcast. Thank you. So, PGS can identify embryos that have aneuploidy, and newer genomics technologies are enabling comprehensive genetic screening of subchromosomal abnormalities. In the context of in vitro fertilization, PGS can increase success rates by helping to select the best embryo for implantation. PGS can also screen embryos for monogenic diseases, and research is underway to widen the scope towards screening for polygenic diseases as well, like type 1 diabetes, which is really critically important to Nathan. In the future, the combination of IVF, PGS, and gene editing may have potential to cure human diseases. But that's all for now. If you like today's show, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Join me next time when I'll be talking with Dr. Jacob Michelson. Associate Professor of Psychiatry at the University of Iowa. We’ll be discussing the genetics of autism and the Nationwide Spark Project, the largest genetic study of autism ever, here on the Illumina Genomics Podcast.